You're listening to episode 182 of Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. Cornelis Venema delves into the second ground of assurance of salvation, as outlined in the Canons of Dort, exploring the profound concept of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. What is the testimony of the Holy Spirit? How does it manifest in the lives of believers? What scriptural basis supports this doctrine? And how does it contribute to our assurance of salvation? Dr. Venema provides insightful answers, clarifying misconceptions, and shedding light on the transformative power of the Holy Spirit's testimony. Take a listen. In our first session, I tried to give a general introduction to the question of assurance by underscoring why it was such an issue at the center of discussion at the time of the Reformation and why Reformers like Calvin and Luther, as well as many of the others, uh, understood the medieval denial that believers ordinarily or properly should be assured and may cultivate a full assurance of their salvation. Uh, That was generally denied. The gospel of God's promises made to us in Jesus Christ and the nature of Christ's saving work as the one who sacrificed and whose obedience is sufficient to place us in a position of favor with God and acceptance with God in terms of our justification. That assurance was one of the principal themes, one of the uh, joyful notes sounded by the Reformers over against the uh, denial to believers of the permissibility of having assurance or even cultivating such assurance. Now, we spent the second half of the first session on what I call the first ground on the basis of Scripture that is mentioned in the uh, Reformed standards or confessions, both in the Canons of Dort, Fifth Main Head of Doctrine, and in the Westminster Confession. Both of them begin where I think we must always begin, and I think we should always end there, and that is look to Christ. Look to him as he's made known to us in his word, Look to what God has promised us concerning our acceptance, our justification, the forgiveness of all our sins. We no longer lie under condemnation. We can come by the blood of Jesus in full assurance into God's presence. That in the confessions based on Scripture is clearly regarded as the foremost. It's not accidental that the first ground of assurance listed in both standards, confessions, are the promises, as the canons put it, that are plentifully distributed and mentioned all throughout the scriptures of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, having said that, both in the canons, listing it second, a second ground, not unrelated to the first, more on that in a bit, uh, listed thirdly, as the third ground in the Westminster Confession of Faith, is what is commonly called the testimony or witness of the Holy Spirit. I do want to call attention to something. People often, when we read these confessions, aren't as careful in our reading as we should be. But I find it 
particularly interesting that the Westminster Confession of Faith, though it lists this ground thirdly, after what is listed third in the West uh, Canons of Dort, mentions very explicitly that when it mentions the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, it also adds this important phrase, which spirit, that is the spirit of adoption, is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby or through whom we are sealed to the day of redemption. So in my comments in the second session regarding the testimony of the Holy Spirit, I also want to touch upon the related topics. They're very closely linked, even explicitly in the text of Scripture, that the Spirit is given to the church and indwells believers and works with the Word, producing faith, and he is himself a firstfruits, an earnest a confirmation uh, by the Spirit. We enjoy the beginnings of that new life, which will be ours in fullness in the new creation. So he's a first fruits of the fullness of the harvest of all the benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus. And as well is given as one who seals by his very presence us unto the day of our redemption. Now, I want to begin by reading the two passages that are most decisive in this connection that are clearly the biblical basis for the language of the confessions regarding the witness of the Holy Spirit. The first is in Romans 8 at verse 15, where uh, the Apostle Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that, if, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now remember that passage and listen with me to another passage in Galatians 4 where Paul says something very similar, but in a little bit different way. He says this, but when, at verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. There you have that language of adoption, which is one of the glorious benefits By God's grace toward us in Christ, we have been received, adopted into God's family, so that through Christ we come to God as our Father and know him to be a loving Heavenly Father. And in and through the Spirit's confirming that word of promise to us concerning our adoption, we cry out to God, Abba, Father. So Paul says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now here's something I want to call to your attention. If you look at these passages and compare them, in the one, Romans, who cries out, Abba, Father? The believer whose spirit bears testimony uh, in response to the gospel promise, 
that I am a child loved of God the Father in Christ. The, the believer's spirit cries out, Abba, Father. In Galatians 4, the spirit of adoption who is given to us is the one who cries out, Abba, Father. Now that brings me to the most important of these two texts. What is Paul suggesting when he speaks of the spirit of adoption who has been given to us as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father? And what precisely is meant by the language, the Spirit himself bears witness, notice the preposition, with our spirits. There is, I would argue, that's the correct translation. There are commentators who, in reflecting on this passage in Romans 8, will argue that it should be translated, the Spirit witnesses to our spirits, and by virtue of the the witnessing of the Spirit to our spirits, we are able in our spirits to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Now, there's a moment of truth in that. Clearly, the testimony of our spirits and the crying out of our spirits to God, Abba, Father, would be a tenuous and unsure, unstable, in my judgment, basis for our confidence of our adoption absent the working of the Holy Spirit with our spirit. So that's the moment of truth. But really, strictly speaking, the majority of translations reflecting the verb that's used and the way it's used elsewhere in Romans is there's a double, I call it a double testimony here. that The testimony is associated because in both cases, it produces the same outcome, confidence that as adopted sons and daughters, we may come to God in the spirit of confidence that he is our father for Jesus' sake. But One of the things that I I think is particularly striking about this double testimony, there are two who bear witness and cry out, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and our spirits echoing or crying out in the same language. I think that, broadly speaking, is an illusion or it picks up a theme in Scripture Uh, In the book of Deuteronomy, in a court of law, when justice is done, God prescribes that testimony is to be borne by two or more witnesses. Paul reflecting that in um, forgetting the text offhand, it's either 1st or 2nd Timothy, late in the book, the letter says to Timothy, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it be brought by at least two or more witnesses. Incidentally, that's also related to the requirement in Matthew 18 in the disciplinary process that when an accusation is made, you, if there's not a repentance in the instance of a private sin, you go with a second person a second time uh, and the matter is, is confirmed. All of that is to say, why do the confessions appeal to this text? Well, for the obvious reason that here we have, in addition to the truth that the Spirit 
gives us to embrace as he works with the word and rely and rest upon, entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ as the only Savior who answers to my need. That's why the fundamental basis always, again and again, is we come for assurance, we come back to what God declares and promises us in Christ, in the gospel. But together with that, the Spirit, who is the Spirit of regeneration, who is the Spirit who illumines our minds so as to see Christ as he's given to us in the gospel, the Spirit who softens our hearts and makes us receptive and moves our wills to apprehend, understand, embrace, and rest confidently in the gospel promise. He also, in conjunction and in association with his work by and with and through the word, bears a testimony to us that we are indeed God's adopted children, confirms that otherwise uncertain testimony of our consciences, more about that in our third session, that we see evidences, tokens of the Spirit's work in us as the faith that the Spirit grants us is confirmed by means of good works. Now, not to be too technical at this point, it's customary to associate this testimony of the Holy Spirit with our spirits, to and with our spirits, uh, confirming and assuring. I can't quote the statement off uh, extemporaneously in John Owen, but John Owen says, when our faith is tried and all we have to go for us is the testimony of our own conscience and what we see in ourselves, uh, the trial's testimony and determination as to the truth of the matter is never settled until the Spirit, he puts it somewhat uh, dramatically, comes into the court and offers this most reliable, because who alone knows the mind of God but the Spirit of God? So the Spirit is the one who can infallibly ensure. Uh, Incidentally, some will argue that the, and I have at times fallen into that trap, that at the end of the day, the Westminster Confession loses the sure basis for assurance in the way it accents the role of good works, I and, and even its hesitation to say that uh, in all respects, such assurance belongs, so belongs to the essence of true faith that all believers should have a kind of measure of assurance, if not full assurance. Uh, I think that's a misreading of the uh, Westminster. It speaks of the possibility of cultivating an infallible assurance. Now, how could a fallible, inf- how could a fallible creature ever come to attain an infallible assurance unless it's rooted in an agent or source that is infallible, whether the infallible, undeniable truthfulness of the word spoken by God in Scripture regarding Christ and his saving work, or this particular testimony born by none other than the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the one whom Christ sent as the Spirit of truth to bring to our remembrance 
the things concerning himself, to abide with us, to comfort us, to reassure us, to so work in us as to give us communion, fellowship. He is the bond, as Calvin puts it, of union between Christ. Otherwise, Christ would remain outside of us. But through the Spirit, with the Word, he comes near us, even so as to indwell us and bear infallible testimony. Uh, All of that's a long way of saying some regard this testimony of the Holy Spirit as belonging to the category of a subjective ground, not an objective ground for assurance. Uh, But I'm not quite sure I wouldn't want to say it's in some respects, it must be in some respects, an objective ground. Uh, You can't swallow up the Spirit by the experience and testimony of our spirits. The Spirit is given to us. And I'll say in that connection and conclude with this, back to the language of earnest and sealing, which in the Westminster Confession is closely associated with its language regarding the testimony of the Holy Spirit, because who is the Spirit? He is the Spirit who is given to us so as to seal our inheritance and also uh, as a down payment, earnest is the old King James translation of the Greek term used, but it's the language especially of Ephesians 1.14 uh, where we're told, I'll begin it at verse 13, Paul writes, in him you also, that is in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that is Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, here's an area, I think, in respect to the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to assurance, and in conjunction with what we've been talking about, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that I think has been either overlooked or, in some cases, misunderstood overlooked in the sense of what greater and more sure basis could there be regarding God's promises to us in Christ than to receive the Spirit who was promised to us as a guarantee, earnest, a down payment, a first fruits. All of those are legitimate translations of what will be ours in the fullness of the harvest and realization of all of God's graces toward us in Christ Jesus. Some interpreters, even in the Reformed tradition, I'll just mention one in the 19th century, Thomas Goodwin. I'll mention another in the 20th century, the well-known Welsh Reformed preacher, a great preacher. I have nothing but great respect for uh, Lloyd-Jones, but unhappily he followed Thomas Goodwin in arguing that we should translate Paul here to have said, in him you also, when you heard the word of, the, of truth and believed in him, were afterward sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, for example, Lloyd-Jones argues in his um, commentary on Romans, especially on this passage, the passage we were talking about earlier, not Ephesians 1, but also the passage we looked at in uh, Romans 8 regarding the spirit of adoption, 
he argues that sometime after all Christians believe, of course, by the Spirit's granting them faith, the gospel promise, but not all Christians subsequent to their becoming Christians and coming into union with Christ enjoy this sealing with the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance. And the the, the important thing for our topic is, according to Lloyd-Jones and Goodwin, that sealing of the Spirit gives a greater measure of full and conscious assurance of God's grace. That simply won't work. The, The participle translated When you heard, rightly in the ESV, when you heard the word, you were sealed. Notice they're coincident. It's a circumstance that coincides with what transpires when any believer comes into fellowship with Christ through faith. The sealing with the Spirit is as much part of what belongs to our fellowship with Christ as a benefit as being adopted as children, as being blameless, as being reconciled to God. Uh, that's why Paul can, in the very same epistle, Ephesians 4, say any believer who is in Christ, who falls short in obeying God's commands, falls into disobedience, such a person grieves the Spirit through whom they were sealed for the day of their redemption. This is not an occasional or an exceptional circumstance enjoyed by some believers at some time after their conversion. Actually, the Spirit himself is the seal. And if I may appeal to Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you all have been baptized with one Spirit into the one body. You all have been made to drink of the one Spirit. So what the Spirit does, testifying, sealing, guaranteeing, confirming the promises of the gospel in Christ, he does with respect to all true believers. It's not an exceptional experience of Christians living, dare I say, on a higher plane. This is the experience that is ordinary and normative proper to all who are in Christ. Next time, Dr. Venema concludes his series on assurance of salvation by examining the fruit of assurance. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchbor. Thank you for listening. <laughs>